Hi, and welcome to Let's Get Clinical. Tips from the CRA Helper. Here is your host, Elizabeth Waddell. Hi, Elizabeth here, and welcome to episode eight, where I will continue to discuss common audit findings. This week, I want to focus on source documentation and also the importance of confirming subject eligibility, which is so important. Subject eligibility can affect a subject safety, but also can affect the efficacy data of a trial. So it's really important. Did I say the word important yet? Apparently, that's going to be a big word that I use a lot today in our discussion of source doc review, source doc verification, confirming a subject's eligibility in a trial. So bear with me, but it really is some good information that's going to help you as a monitor and also help ensure the integrity of the trial data as a whole. So let's start with the source in general. So after I review the consent and the HIPAA, remember from the last broadcast, broadcast, podcast, (laughs) I would review the consent and the HIPAA because you have to have a consent and a HIPAA both before you can continue review of a subject. So I then would begin my source document review, also known as SDR. Now this should not be confused with source document verification, which is SDV. SDV, source data verification, is when you look at every CRF entry against that original source because you want to make sure that all that data is valid, it's verifiable, and it was entered and transcribed accurately. So as monitors, we should be ensuring that that CRF data isn't just something that eh, was just entered in on the CRF paper or on the electronic CRF. It wasn't just something just entered directly in there that actually came from somewhere. So all that data in the CRF comes from the source. So when we're looking in the source, I should be able to find and compare both. Every CRF data entry point, I can't say this enough, must come from the source, because the source is the first place that the data is recorded. So that's what the source data verification is. You're reconciling the source CRF, making sure that all that data is verifiable and is valid. And that's a way that you can kind of remember which is which between SDR and SDV, because SDV, you're verifying. You're verifying that that CRF data came from the source. So you're going to be dreaming about that statement because I've said it so much, but (laughs) that should definitely be ingrained in your minds. So now source document review, um, SDR, that's where you're like reviewing all of the source in its entirety. You want to confirm compliance with the protocol, with regulations, that it's quality data, that it meets those alcoic standards. If there is PI involvement at the site, if only delegated staff is performing procedures, what about subject safety? Are you seeing that reviewing all that source? And you want to also ensure that the patient is eligible for the trial. So all this information comes when you're looking at that source in its entirety. So in my experience, most sites would create source worksheets, which is fine. It's actually nice because it's a way for the site to ensure that they're capturing all the required data points for the study. So like usually they would have like the protocol, blank CRF, so they can see all the data points, and then also like the eCRF or the CRF completion guidelines, and they would look at all these things together to make sure that they're capturing all the data points that are required to be captured for that study. But sometimes people don't like source worksheets because that usually will capture the bare minimum. So 
sites will provide the subject medical records in addition to the source worksheets. And I think that's that's what makes it one complete picture. Because the source worksheets by itself, you're kind of like, oh, that's their bare minimum, you know, like where are the progress notes. So a lot of times that's why people aren't fans of source worksheets. But when you have it in combination with the medical records, that gives the clear picture. Like that's what you need. You need that together. So what they would do is if it was one of their patients, I primarily, I worked on CNS studies. So a lot of my sites were private practice and we had like their own research department, or maybe it was a company that specializes in research and then they would work with different PIs. So I've worked with both, but a lot of times they would have, especially for the trials that involved Alzheimer's and things like that, those weren't trials that you could really just like put an IRB approved ad out there and and recruit patients, it really came from doing like chart reviews or maybe getting a referral from another physician. But in those cases, if it was a PI or sub I patient, they would provide the medical records for that subject, or they would request like the patient would sign a medical record release and they would request the records and they'd provide it again. So I'd have the medical records I'd have the source worksheets. So I'm getting that full picture. And if it ends up that they need to request outside records and the site cannot obtain the medical records, then we need to see some sort of due diligence that they tried to obtain the records. And again, for each study that you're on, you're gonna have the protocol and you're gonna have a clinical monitoring plan. And that monitoring plan is gonna specify exactly what's required and what needs to be done and what needs to be reviewed for each trial. So a lot of times they'll clearly note what they want to see as far as that due diligence for obtaining medical records. Most of the studies I've been on, um, we want to at least see three attempts that they've tried to obtain it. So a lot of times I'd see fax requisitions. If they're requesting it via fax, I also want to see a fax confirmation report to show that it went through. So usually I would see three attempts or sometimes the site might also call in addition and they would document that phone call. So this whole thing leads to a common audit finding of missing or incomplete source documentation. And unfortunately, we can see this a lot. As monitors, we need to ensure that we're being provided all of the source, all source documentation for subjects. And usually this is a discussion point at the PSVs. It's the pre-study visits or site selection visits. This is actually a topic that we discuss with the site. We determine, do you use electronic source? Do you use paper source? And if it's electronic source, does it meet certain criteria per regulations? CFR uh, Part 11, does it meet those criteria? Are you going to give the CRA access to the electronic source? Or is it going to be certified copies provided? So all of these things we determine at the beginning and we document. And also we have to determine and and discuss this with the PI. Do you agree that you're going to provide the monitor with all of the source at every single monitoring visit? We need to determine that at the beginning because if not, and they're like, nope, i I'll give you this, but I won't give you that. We need to determine that because if that's the case, that's a red flag. And that would definitely affect the site being chosen for a study. And we'll reiterate, discuss what's required at the initiation visit as well. So just to recap before I keep moving on. So we reviewed source document review. So that's reviewing the source in its entirety. And we want to also ensure that the sites are providing complete, full, all medical records for the patients. So if it's not one of their patients, if it's not a PI or sub-I patient where they have the medical records that they can provide, then the sites need to request the medical records then. And then when they receive them, they'll file it with the source documentation that they have with the source worksheets. Then you'll have that clear picture. You have the medical records and the source worksheets together. So if it ends up that they are unable to get the um, records from the outside facility, then we do need to see due diligence that they've requested it. Usually, like I said, it's about 
three requests that I want to see documented in the source. Usually it's fax requests with the fax confirmations and then maybe phone calls where they've called and requested them as well. And if they can't get it, they just need to completely, in addition to the due diligence trying to request it, just to document that they were unable to get them. So hopefully that's not the norm, though, because if that is the norm, then that's a problem, too. If you see a trend where they're never able to get any records, then that's a whole nother issue that you may want to bring up to your lead CRA on the study. So yes, I would definitely escalate that. Trends are a big thing that we should also look at as monitors. If you see a trend, definitely escalate, escalate, escalate. And again, I say lead survey because that's what I'm used to dealing with. But usually when you're on a study, the clinical monitoring plan is going to specify the communication plan, who you're in contact with and everyone on the study. So the clinical monitoring plan should uh, include the communication and the escalation path for your study. Now, each CRA is different in regard to their style of monitoring. Some like to record things electronically, some like to write notes down on paper, and that's what I would like to do. And also, each CRA has their own style of what order they like to review things. For me, after reviewing the consent and the HIPAA and the consent process, I would start with a screening visit and I would make notes regarding the medical history and the concomitant medications that the patient was taking, for example. So that would help me when I was reviewing those previous medical records because when you're reviewing all those clinic visits, private practice visits over the years, and I would read the different diagnoses that the patient would have, I would want to compare that with the medical history that I had in my notes from the screening visit to make sure, okay, is this something that was captured in the med history? And if it wasn't, I would query regarding that. And the same thing when reviewing medications prescribed over the years, I would look to see, okay, what indication is that for? And then I would compare that again to the medical history that was recorded at the screening visit. And if that wasn't captured, then again, I would query. So a lot of this I would compare and you're getting that complete picture and same thing um, for date of birth or anything about the patient that's recorded at the screening visit and they're in the study. You want to make sure it's consistent with those previous medical records. So that's very important as a monitor is to ensure consistency throughout the source. Anywhere something else can be recorded, you want to make sure it's consistent. So um, that's something that I would do and I'd get that clear picture. Your protocol and your clinical monitoring plan, again, is going to specify, I can't say that enough, is going to specify all the documentation and the tests and the, and the reports that you need to review and that are required for your particular study. Again, I'm going over things in general. You want to be very familiar with um, the CMP, that clinical monitoring plan and your protocol, and also CRF completion guidelines. All these things are tools that you want to be very familiar with as you're monitoring at your sites. So for example, I'll make a quick example about the clinical monitoring plan. I actually had one study. It was an asthma study. And in addition to having to look at their x-ray report that was sent from the radiologist, in addition to having to look at that report, we also had to verify that there was an actual x-ray film. So we had to look at the x-ray film that it was for that particular patient. So I don't know what the history was there with that sponsor, but we had to do that. We had to make sure there was actual film to make sure that those weren't fabric reports. So that was interesting. That was the first and only time I had to do that. But again, it just depends. There may be extra things that you have to confirm, very detailed requirements for your study. So just be very familiar with all of your study documentation. So again, I'm going over things in general. So I wanted to definitely point that out. So for my sites that would have subjects that were from their own practice, they would provide the medical records, not only the historical medical records, but they would also need to provide any officer clinic visits that happened during the study as well. Because remember, they have to provide all the source. You don't want to ever have an FDA auditor go in there and say, hey, I need to have all of your medical records. 
and they provide all of them to the FDA auditor, but did not provide all of them to the monitor. You would never want an FDA auditor to get medical records not reviewed by a study monitor. So we just try to reiterate that with the site. You need to ensure that you're providing all the source to your study monitor. So they were required to provide medical records that were um, historical medical records, as well as any office or private practice visits that occurred during the study. This didn't happen a lot just because they would see the PI or sub-I during the research visit, so they didn't necessarily have to have separate visits to the private practice, but you never know. So there was a time when I was reviewing questionnaires. It was for an AD trial, an Alzheimer's disease trial, and I was reviewing questionnaires, and the rater for that particular rating scale made a note that the subject had seen the doctor the past week, but there was no study visit at that time. So I had asked the site to clarify and and come to find out the patient actually did go to the private practice and that particular those particular medical records were not provided. So the site was reeducated regarding providing all the source for the study and this includes medical records and this was documented in the trip report as well and then the site had to provide that. So sometimes as monitors we are private investigators. We want to read all those comments written on the side. You never know where it can lead. Again, like with the rating scales, there might be little notes that the rater takes as they're interviewing the patient before they actually assess and choose an answer for um, that particular question if they rate the criteria. And so we definitely want to just take that time, read those things. You never know what you can find. Sometimes there's a comment, oh, the patient went to the ER or there could be AEs you find, new medications, or just like this example where the patient um, actually had a private practice visit between and it was so it was some source that wasn't provided. So another example um, was a trial I was on where BCC basal cell carcinoma was captured as an SAE on a vaccine trial I was on. And for a particular site I was at, it was the handwritten doctor notes. And if I had any trouble reading it, then I would question the site because I wanted to clarify. I didn't want to just assume, well, I could read everything around and I just can't read this one little blurb. No, even if I couldn't read one little blurb on the page, I wanted to confirm and clarify with the site. Now, since it wasn't a discrepancy with the EDC data per se, it was just something that I wanted to clarify. I would flag it and then I would document it in more detail as follow-up on my monitoring clarification log, which leads me to a side point. I've seen the CRA audit notes on the Clint Essential site and they are so awesome. I wish I had them when I was monitoring because like I said, it was easy for me to flag with sticky notes where in the source I wanted to clarify something That way the coordinator could flip easily. And then, of course, I had to document on my monitoring clarification log because, A, stickies fall off. So you want to make sure it's documented somewhere. But also we want an audit trail. We want to see that documentation of different things that they were asked to clarify. So I would use the stickies in addition. But still, you'd want to write stuff on the stickies because it made easier on the coordinator so they could go through, make the corrections, and then sign off on the monitoring clarification log, initial on that, after. So I would use both. And you know, when you're looking at multiple patients and going through, you're writing a lot and it takes time. So when I saw those CRA audit notes and they're color coded and they have like protocol deviation, please clarify, please add to drug accountability log, temperature excursion, please file, please report to IRB. I was like, oh my gosh, why did I not have this? That would save so much time because it's pre-populated on there. So you just stick it on. And then if it had multiple choices on one of the stickies, then you just check which box, like please report to IRB or, you know, whatever it may be. And I was like, oh my gosh, I wish I had that. That would have saved so much time. And the um, color coding is awesome because then that helps the coordinator will know like which ones are priority. So I had to go there. It was, I thought that was so awesome. So for that particular site, I had questioned, so on my monitor clarification log, they didn't 
um, clarify yet on that medical record what I couldn't read. And so I thought up again, like, look, this is like one of the only open things left for this particular patient from the last visit. So I need to know. Let's confirm with the PI what this says. Well, it ended up, it was BCC. It was basal cell carcinoma. So that was an unreported SAE. So some might think, oh, just a little blurb and keep going. But no, really, anything that you cannot read or any little notes, even on a rating scale, read everything. You never know what's on there and what it could lead to. So I definitely wanted to make sure to point that out. So the next common audit finding is regarding eligibility. It's where there's no supporting source or PI involvement in regards to eligibility. So for those of you that are not as familiar, in a study protocol, it will specify the subject population in the trial, as well as including information regarding the selection of the subjects, which includes inclusion criteria and exclusion criteria. So a subject must meet all inclusion and none of the exclusion in order to be eligible for a particular study. So again, most of the sites I'd experience with would generate source worksheets, and then there would be like an inclusion exclusion checklist, again, which is great. However, there does need to be source supporting the subject's eligibility for the trial as well. So again, for me, I'm a paper girl. So in addition to my monitoring worksheets, I would print out the IE criteria from the protocol for each subject, and I would go through line by line ensuring the subject was truly eligible for the trial. So for like the date of birth, med history, con meds, I was constantly comparing. There's criteria usually with age. So I'm looking at the date of birth. Okay, they're the right age at the time that they're screened for the study or the time of enrollment. Then if there's a medical history that they need to have or can't have that I'm constantly comparing between the medical records, source worksheets, between the um, IE criteria. And then again, con meds, are there any disallowed meds that they can't be on? And so then again, I'm looking at their concomitant medication list. So you're constantly comparing line by line to see if they're truly eligible for the trial. And some criteria actually you'll see has multiple components just in one particular criteria. So it could be number four of the inclusion criteria, and then they'd have to have all these different components. So let me give you an example. So let's just pretend, say it's number four on the inclusion list. And as for the subject, they have to have a normal CT scan with contrast within a year of screening. So what I would do is, if it was me, I would look at that CT scan, look at that report, and I would check each component of that inclusion criteria. So I would look, okay, is it within a year? It's supposed to be a CT scan with contrast because... Some studies you're on, they may say you can have a CT scan with or without contrast, or they may specify it has to be with contrast. So this particular example, I said it had to have it. So, okay, so that would be the next thing I'd look at. Does a CT scan, does it show that it was with contrast? And was it normal? What were the results? Was it normal? And usually in this case, when you have like a radiology report, a CT scan, MRI, ECG, lab results, you want to see that it's been reviewed by a PI or a medically qualified sub-I that's been delegated to make sure it's been reviewed. So usually they'll sign a date showing their review. And if there is any abnormality, they'll note if the results were clinically or not clinically significant. So those would be things that I would look for for that particular criteria. And then usually what I would do, so say it was number four and had all those different components like normal CT scan with contrast within a year of screening. So then I would check off that little section within a year with contrast, normal, 
And I would check off all of that. And then I'd finally check off, okay, number four, they met all the components. So sometimes they might have a lot of pieces. So you just want to make sure you understand every bit of that inclusion, exclusion criteria that you're checking that the source supports that. Not just the checklist, but the source supports it also. One of the criteria, if it was like labs, for example, like if there were exclusionary creatinine levels, then I would look at the lab report to see if the creatinine levels were within acceptable range. And I would go from there. So a lot of times, or they may say they can't have any abnormal clinically significant lab results. And I would look at the lab report. Are there any out of range lab results? If so, are they clinically or not clinically significant? So you're constantly comparing, making sure that the subject is truly eligible for the trial. And I'll give an example. One of the studies I was on, there was a certain lab result that had to be within a certain range for the patient to qualify for the study. And if you looked at just the source worksheets by itself, it looked like they met criteria, all the inclusion, yes, all the exclusion, no. And so again, like I said, I go through line by line and check that lab report. So I noticed that that particular lab result wasn't present in the report. And it ends up that sites actually would get a separate lab report for that particular result because it was a frozen sample that was sent separately. So it ended up they didn't send that sample in yet. They didn't have the result. So technically, they didn't know if that patient truly was eligible. But yet, the PI went through and checked off that they met the criteria. So that's why it is so important that you check it for yourself behind them to make sure that you're seeing these results and they're truly eligible and they have every result needed to confirm that they're truly eligible. And if it was a study that had rating scales and they had to meet certain scores in order to be eligible, then I would, again, go to those particular rating scales and questionnaires, confirm the scores and make sure, again, confirm that eligibility. And I would do this for each and every criteria. And it takes time. I've been on some studies that had like 14 inclusion, 47 exclusion. It does take time, but it's something that we are required to do. We want to ensure the subject safety, data integrity, and also eligibility. If a subject's not eligible, not only does it affect their safety, efficacy results of the trial. So it is so important. And lastly, when a subject is confirmed as completely eligible, that final sign off that they're eligible and ready to be randomized to study drug, we want to see final sign off by the PI or medically qualified delegated sub-I. Think of it like a prescription, only doctors or someone medically qualified, right? I know for me, I don't want to be prescribed medication unless they're medically qualified. So in a study, you want to see that final sign off. Remember, there's certain medical criteria, there's certain medical history conditions, ECG result, lab results, all these things, disallowed medications, all these things that you would need a medically qualified individual to assess. So definitely final sign off needs to be by a PI or medically qualified uh, delegated sub-I without question. So Again, there may be even more specifics required for your actual study that you're on. This is just in general guidance. (laughs) But if you do notice that there's a PI not involved at your site, then definitely escalate this immediately. It's a huge issue. PIs are not just there for signature. They are to oversee their trial. They are ultimately responsible for the trial. This is subject safety, data quality. So definitely PI involvement is huge. So if you really are seeing based on everything that you're reviewing that they're not involved, definitely escalate this. And we're in the age of technology. So I wanted to point this out. And this was actually my first for seeing this. I was performing an assessment visit and it ended up that I want to say there was documentation. It was for confirming the patient was eligible to start study drug. And it was a copy and pasted 
signature of the PI. And that was not the only place it was. So it was very disturbing to see, you know, that was definitely a question if there was PI involvement, if the PI was even ever there because of the copy and pasted signature. So be on the lookout for that, especially as we're in the technological age. So um, wanted to point that out. But I hope that this information helped you. I know it was kind of some parts might be dry and it was a lot of me rambling, but quality and subject safety are so important. So I definitely wanted to dedicate an episode to this. So I really hope it helped. But if you like what you hear, um, hit subscribe and check out my free resources at thecrahelper.com. Also, if you get a chance, those CRA audit notes I was talking about, check those out. Those are on the Clint Essentials website. I would have loved it. Like I said, I'm like a kid in a candy store with all that stuff. So um, definitely check it out. Clint Essentials is so awesome. They're actually offering my listeners a special 15% discount. All you have to do is enter the code the CRA Helper 2020 that is so awesome. Thank you, Clint Essentials. So next week, I will continue with discussion of common audit findings, and you will have to wait again to see which one I choose. So thank you guys again. I pray you have a great day, and I look forward to our time together next week. Until next time.